All right. Um, so today we are looking at the finish line of the book of Revelation. Um, the last two chapters, this week and next, this is what the entire book of Revelation has been pointing towards. This is, this is what the whole New Testament has been pointing towards. This is what the whole Bible has been pointing towards in hope. This, this is what all of history has been pointing towards. Now, it's important to remember this morning, we are still in the book of Revelation. So there are details that will be confusing and unclear. But the big picture this morning is something we, we can and must all grasp. It is beautiful beyond words. And that's why it's so hard to understand. John is struggling to put into words a beauty beyond comprehension. Beyond our wildest imaginations. It is the fulfillment of all hope. It is the perfection of peace. It's the apex of joy, the untainted beauty of holiness, the unhindered embrace of love. Theologians unimaginatively call it the eternal state. Because this state of hope and joy and peace and holiness and love, it's everlasting. It has no expiration date. It goes on and on and on and on. But John calls it the new heaven and the new earth. The center of it is something called a new Jerusalem. And that's what we get to think together about this morning. Open your Bibles, Revelation 21, and let me pray for us. Lord, have mercy upon us now by your spirit and your word. Open our eyes to see the beauty of the hope that is sure before us. Lord, those who suffer this morning, may they see it vividly, clearly, more real than the burdens they bear. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth, had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. A new heaven, a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. That sin-ravaged first earth as we know it is no more. 
But what John says next can be more troubling than hopeful, especially for people who live in North Carolina. The sea was no more? Like, no, no beaches? No outer banks? No surfing or snorkeling or deep sea fishing? Um, scholars tell us that we should be more than open to the idea that the earth will not be so much destroyed and, and made brand new all over as, as wildly and fully renewed. And so perhaps that will be the same with the sea. It'll be renewed and the waters of Wilmington will look like this. Yeah. Imagine that being a three and a half hour drive. There'd be nobody here on the weekends. Nobody. See, in the book of Revelation, the sea is steadily a symbol of evil. It's where that beast of chapter 13 rises from. It's where in chapter 16, the judgment of God is poured out on it, turning the sea to blood and killing all that is in it. See, the main emphasis of this symbolic end of the sea on the new earth has nothing to do with beach trips or deep sea fishing. Rather, it is that there will be no evil on the new earth. Professor Dennis Johnson says it well. He says, when it says the sea is no more, it's not intended to answer our questions about opportunities to surf or snorkel or sail. Instead, it conveys good news. Our divine champion will come to destroy our every enemy, to wipe away every tear, to eliminate every realm of restless rebellion, securing for all eternity our joyful, holy communion with God, who will make his dwelling with us forever. John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. This is what John sees, this city descending from heaven to the new earth. It's the centerpiece of the new creation. Coming down out of heaven from God like a bride. And he'll say down in, in just a few verses later that the church is both in the city and is the city. Um, it's, it's part of the richness of the symbol. And that's why he can say that the city is like a bride adorned for her husband. Pastor Ray Ortland writes about that imagery of a bride adorned. He says, this is the gospel's answer to our shame. Every one of us knows the shame of guilty self-awareness and the fear of exposure. He says, we don't want to live in the isolation of that darkness. We long for freeing relationships with others, especially God. But without the gospel, we hide, conceal, falsify ourselves in order to appear better than we are. Or conversely, we may trot out our failings with assertive self-display demanding acceptance, a more modern response. But the gospel says your shame is real, even more real than you know. But this is what God has done. He put it all onto Christ at the cross where your substitute was utterly shamed and exposed and condemned for you. Now your shame no longer defines you. What defines you, what reveals your future, however, is this one word, adorned. 
not shamed, adorned, lovely, attractive. And the moment is coming, he says, when he will look into your eyes with glad adoration. And you will look into his eyes with confident surrender. And nothing, nothing will ever, ever spoil it again. And John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as long as, be with them as their God. And so this long-awaited hope is being fulfilled in the vision. God is with us in the most intimate, personal way. It, it follows the bride imagery. He's no longer separated from us by a sacred curtain or a veil. He's no longer unseeable to our sinful eyes. We no longer need fear perishing should we even glimpse the holiness of his, of his face. No, now he's with us. He's among us as our God, and we are his people. And how long creation has longed for this moment. All the way back to the book of Leviticus, Says, God says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Back to the opening pages of, of the Old Testament. This has been the longing of all of creation. And what this means when it comes to pass is the very best of news. And these these are some of the most favorite verses in all of Scripture. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Just walk back through that with me. This portrait of hope fulfilled. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, perhaps one of the most tender parenting moments that you could see is when a little one is so terribly distressed or injured or afraid or both, and a mom or a dad swoops them up, soothes their troubled souls, and literally wipes their tears away. It's a beautiful thing. And here we see he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God will do that for us. He will do that for you. Every tear, tears of betrayal, tears of loss, tears of regret, tears of mourning, tears of pain, tears of fear, all of them, all of them, he will wipe away for you forevermore. And death shall be no more. Pastor Sam Storms writes about this. He says, no more death, not of husbands, wives, aunts, 
uncles, children, brothers, sisters, grandfathers, grandmothers, cousins, friends, and neighbors. Funeral homes will be put out of business on the new earth. Cemeteries will be empty for all will have been raised in glorified bodies that are no longer susceptible to disease and decay. Never again the long meetings at the funeral home deciding on caskets and vaults and limos and flowers. No graveside services. No obituaries to be read. No video tributes of a person's life. No eulogies. No flowers to be sent or cards of condolence to be written. Never again a long caravan of cars with their headlights on. Death. Death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Pastor John Piper wrote a poem about this. It's, it's so helpful. It's not great poetry, but it's so helpful. He says, I knew, I knew that I was on the brink of endless joy, and everywhere I turned saw a wonder there, a big man running on the lawn, that's old John Young with both legs on. The blind can see a bird on wing. The dumb can lift their voice to sing. The diabetic eats at will. The coronary runs uphill. The lame can walk. The deaf can hear. Ah, the cancer-ridden bone is clear. Arthritic joints are live and free, and every pain has ceased to be, every sorrow deep within, and every trace of lingering sin is gone, and all that's left is joy. And endless ages to employ the mind and heart and understand and love the sovereign Lord who planned that it should take eternity to lavish all his grace on me. So imagine that. A world with no sorrow, no suffering, no sin. No sickness, none, not even a sniffle. And that, friends, is why it is worth it to faithfully follow Jesus now, to conquer the temptation, to just surrender your faith now. Now, when it's hard, when the sorrow and suffering seem like they're going to swallow your faith up, now it's worth it. It will all be worth it. We're going to sing this lyric at the close of our service today. The Lord will banish every sin. All that's broken, he will mend and make new. We will see him face to face as he wipes our tears away. Death is through. All the ransomed and redeemed of every tongue and tribe will sing Behold, behold, God makes his home with us. He'll take his throne forever glorious 
And the curse will be undone. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. We'll sing that at the close of our service. Tonight, 6 o'clock, we gather for prayer in this room to pray for the sick and the suffering, to ask God for a foretaste of that which will be ours fully on that day, to ask for healing and health, for comfort. So come back tonight. Pray for your brothers and sisters. The suffering in our church is great these days. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things. And he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Write it down. Don't forget. They're trustworthy. They're not just trustworthy. They're true. Trust this. Hope in this. Order your life around this. It comes from God himself by means of an angel entrusted to the apostle John and written down here for you. Trust it. Hope in it. Even now, especially now, when you suffer and you're pressed to give in and just give up. John says, he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And here we have the great promise of God on top of everything else. This will be your heritage. God will be your God, and you will be his child. And then comes this sober warning, but... As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And scholars point out to us that the emphasis here is primarily on those who don't persevere. People in the church who don't persevere, who walk away, who deny Christ, they are, the, they are the cowardly ones he has in mind. When their faith costs them, costs them their comfort or their reputation or worse, they walk away. They deny Jesus. They don't follow anymore. For them, it just isn't worth it. They are the faithless, he has in mind here, whose secret life is marked by all kinds of detestable immoralities. Their faith is a lie. And this is all the more incentive to persevere when it's hard in following Jesus no matter what. It proves your faith genuine. 
And so now we roll into this lengthy description of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the centerpiece of the new creation. And as you listen to it, don't miss the beauty of the forest trying to identify the trees, okay? Don't be that guy who's out in the blaze of color that is our mountains this time of year, and he's got his nose in a guidebook saying, hmm, is that an Acer rubrum or an Acer spicatum? Hmm. No. Enjoy the view. Take it in. Worship. What you're going to hear is beauty beyond words, okay? And then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So now in the imagery, the bride is the city, and all the beauty that's ascribed to the city belongs to the bride. It's, it's how she's adorned. We will be stunningly beautiful in the eyes of Christ, like a bride to her groom. Just think about that for a moment. Such will be the delight of our God over us. And the way this verse starts bears an eerie resemblance to the way chapter 17 started. Listen for the similarities. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. So there's a vivid contrast here. In chapter 17, he says, this same angel says, come, see this woman who's a prostitute that represents the city Babylon. And here in our passage, the same angel comes now and says, come and see this woman who's a faithful bride, who is the city, the new Jerusalem. In verse 11, it has, this city has the glory of God its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, and on the gates, on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So it's an incredibly beautiful city. He says it, he's trying to think, it's like a jewel. It's like a really valuable jewel, the most rare. And it's totally secure, okay? No doorbell cam needed, okay? This is surrounded by an amazing wall. Great, high, totally secure. And there are lots of gates, 12 of them. They provide ceaseless access for the people of God to come into the presence of God. And, of course, there's 12 of everything, right? Um, 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 foundations, 12 names of the 12 apostles. And when they measure the city, in just a minute, as you'll see, it's 12,000 stadia. 
and the wall is 144 cubits high. If you do the math, that's 12 times 12. There are 12 types of precious stones used, and the 12 gates are made of 12 pearls. The litany of 12s uh, is, is, you can't miss it as you read the passage. Everything is 12, and it, it has the idea, it symbolizes the idea of completeness or fullness, and 12 is often associated with the people of God. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. So here all the people of God are experiencing all the bounty and beauty of God. It's awesome. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, just in case you were wondering. Okay. So the, uh, the angel's measuring here, the city, it, it may be a symbol of God's ownership and protection. It's like when you buy your, you buy your house, right? You have a survey done to tell you what's yours. And so here, God's serving, he's, he's casing the joint. It's all his, he owns it all. And it's huge, okay? And it's a perfect cube, a massive cube, 12,000 stadia, which is something like 1,400 miles wide and, and deep and high. So somebody built this little gizmo for us here it's a big city okay um, that's how big it is it's bigger than India it projects well beyond the earth's atmosphere in height Grant professor Grant Osborne writes that the numbers obviously symbolic it signifies not only perfection but a city large enough to hold all the saints down through the ages, the saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. And the wall, it says, was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The foundations of the city, the foundation, I don't know about you, but I do not adorn the foundations of my house but the foundations of this city are adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopite, whatever, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And you can get, this, get the sense here, John is desperate for words and imagery to describe the beauty of the city. And so he's picking the most beautiful jewels that he could imagine. Twelve different kinds of stones used in building the city and its wall. It's a fulfillment of what the prophets in the Old Testament longed for. Isaiah 54, O afflicted one, storm-tossed, not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, 
and lay your foundations with sapphires and make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. Yeah, I've always been fascinated that the building materials of heaven are um, the, the stuff we value most now, right? Gold, rubies, pearls, jewels. They're used for common building materials on the new earth. Uh, brick and mortar. You've, you've probably heard this story in one form or another. Um, I disavow all the theology in this story, okay? <laughs> Except for the point I want to make. So one evening, there's a rich man who's thinking about death. And he prays fervently what to do about all of his wealth. Angel appears to him, says, sorry, bud, but you can't take it with you. He pleads and he prays and the angel confers with the Lord and he's granted one suitcase to take with him to heaven. So overjoyed, the man gets the largest suitcase he could find, fills it with pure gold bars. Soon afterwards he dies, he shows up at the gates of heaven, the pearly gates. And uh, St. Peter, who seems to hang around the pearly gates and all the stories that are ever told about heaven, <laughs> says, hold on, you can't bring that in here. And the man explains God gave him a special exemption. He could bring this one bag. He says, okay, you can bring the suitcase in with you, but first I must check its contents. And he opens the suitcase. He sees, he wants to see what worldly items the man had considered too precious to leave behind. And Peter looks in the suitcase. He looks at the man in disbelief and he says, you brought pavement? Streets of gold, pavement, you'll get it later. Um, but hey, how beautiful must the city of God be where we will dwell forever? When the material we value most here is used for pavement, foundations. And John goes on, he says, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. There's no temple there. They don't need one. God himself and the Lamb are present there and are the temple fully accessible, directly accessible to us. You remember the city being cube-shaped? Um, it's interesting. That's the shape of the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. It was a perfect cube. And it was the one place where, where the high priest could once a year encounter the presence of God in some form or fashion. And here in this cube-shaped city, gates are always open. We have full access 24-7 to God. And there's no need of sun or moon to shine because the glory of God and the Lamb give it light. Sam Storms puts it this way. He says, does this verse mean that there'll be literally no sun or moon in the new cosmos? Perhaps. 
but it may also simply mean that God's glory is incomparable in relation to any source of light of either the old or the new creation. He says, if you were to light a candle in a dark room, it would shine brightly. But if you were then to take that candle outside on a cloudless day, the brilliance of the sun would be so much greater that the light of the candle would be reduced to virtually nothing. So he says John's point may be that even if there were sun and moon in the new heaven and new earth, in comparison with the blinding brilliance of God's glory, these luminaries would hardly even be noticed. What kind of glory obscures that? By its light, he says, will the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So again, like so much of this imagery, this is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets longed for. Isaiah says in chapter 60, nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So the wealth of the nations shall come to you. Hear the echoes? Your gates shall be opened continually day and night. They shall not be shut that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. It's an imagery of our future worship. With all that we are and all that we have, we worship God. The fruit of the work of our hands, good work without sin or thorn or thistle, our art, our music, brought into the city to offer it to the Lamb and to the one who sits on the throne. And the gates are always open in this city. We always have access to the presence, the very presence of God that no sinful man in this world could even endure a glimpse of. We always have access to God in the fullest, most powerful, most beautiful, most, beautiful, most loving sense. And he closes with this, another sobering thought, but nothing unclean will never enter it, ever enter it, rather. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There will be nothing unclean there. There will be no sin there. There will not even be any temptation there. You won't need that Covenant Eyes software anymore. No temptation. No sin. Nothing unclean will ever enter, nor anyone who is false does what is detestable. It's not that you can never enter this city if you've ever sinned, but you cannot enter unless you trust the payment of the penalty for your sins to the Lamb who was slain for you. Jesus is that lamb. That's how John the Baptist introduced Jesus to his disciples. You remember, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Professor Osborne makes this observation. The idea of entering into the new Jerusalem is the reverse image of Revelation 3.20. Of standing, it says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will enter in. Jesus promises there. He says, if you combine those two, we'll only enter the new Jerusalem when we have allowed Christ 
to enter our lives. So if you've been resisting opening your life to Christ, to hope in him as Savior and to follow him as Lord, would you just say yes to him today? Let's pray, church. Oh, Lord, you will banish every sin and all that's broken you will mend make new and we will see you face to face as you wipe our tears away and death is through and all the ransomed and redeemed of every tongue and tribe will sing behold behold God makes his home with us you'll take your throne forever glorious and the curse will be undone come Lord Jesus, come.